Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of 219 Green Connect, where we explore topics about green living and the environment in Northwest Indiana. For past show archives, news, and upcoming events, you can check out our website at 219greenconnect.com or join us on Facebook or Twitter. Our ID on both Facebook and Twitter is 219greenconnect. You can also subscribe to this podcast via iTunes. I'm your host, Kathy Sipple, and with me today I have artist-activist Thomas Frank, and he has been working with the Dunelands Environmental Justice Alliance on a recent initiative called Calumet Lives Matter. We've been seeing in the news quite a bit lately about um, some really disturbing things going on in East Chicago, and I reached out to Thomas to help fill me in and hopefully fill in listeners too about what is going on and what what's needed, what can we do to help. So quite frankly, Thomas Frank, <laughs> sorry I didn't mean to make that pun, <laughs> but I did it. Let me go ahead and, and just turn it over to you. So thanks again for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. Um, this is really nice to be able to talk about the situation in Calumet, uh, the neighborhood of Calumet in East Chicago. Um, do, you, do you want me to do an overview real quick? Yeah, I mean, from what I gather, you know, just trying to read some things online, it seems like there's been what many would call an epic fail with um, people that were supposed to have their eye on the ball with a super fun cleanup site, and it's resulted mm-hmm. in lead and arsenic. Is that that's like kind of right. what I know, but yeah. Right. So what what happened to lead us up to this? Um, yeah, just whatever you feel is appropriate, Great. I'm going to trust your, your judgment on it. You go for it. Great. Well, let me give you a quick overview. Um, so this is occurring in what we call the Calumet Industrial Corridor on the southern shores of Lake Michigan. We share that corridor with the southeast side of Chicago and extends uh, all pretty much over the Chesterton uh, and Michigan City, of course. Um, and so we faced in these last 40 years uh, a, a massive disinvestment of a lot of industries here. And we've had some struggling situations uh, with steel and steel-related jobs. And we've seen, oh, just in East Chicago alone, we've seen um, nearly 70,000 jobs lost in steel and steel-related industries here in East Chicago. And this is called Steel Town. Nonetheless, uh, what we have here is trying to address some of the legacy problems of the last 100 years of industrialization. The Calumet neighborhood was bordered and also built on top of lead refineries. There were five within the area, one to the south, which, was, which is what the Superfund site has been named after, that's USS Lead. And there were three that occupied um, one of the neighborhoods, and that was called West Calumet, which in 1972, was, uh, they built a, um, a housing project on it. Uh, and that was Anaconda, which later became Eagle Pitcher. And then to the north, there was another lead refinery called U.S. Reduction. Um, but nonetheless, today what we're facing is what's, what's brought us to this moment now is that the mayor of East Chicago, um, in hearing the, the numbers uh, in terms of lead contamination and arsenic contamination in the neighborhood of uh, West Calumet, uh, being as high as 91,000 parts per million, of lead contamination, um, decided that 
he probably ought to trigger a forced evacuation uh, of those residents. And it being a public housing uh, project uh, was probably a very smart thing to do. Um, 91,000 parts per million is literally about 217 to 220 times uh, above the allowable limit. It's severely contaminated, probably the worst in the country. Uh, and that's what we're facing, and that's what's really triggered this, was this massive actuation. Yeah, so my heart just really goes out to these people that, you know, not only have nowhere to live, uh, they find out that for years and years and years, some of them decades, it seems, have been letting their, you know, their kids outside playing in this contaminated soil, which is really what we try to, you know, encourage kids to do, get outside, play in the dirt, um, enjoy nature. And so, you know, I guess my concern in this this area is multi-pronged. It's just, number one, where are all these people going? You know, what do they need? Is there an effort to, you know, help out? How can people who are hearing about this plug in to kind of give them some relief? And then, you know, number two, what's going to happen as far as the, you know, health issues that have now come to light for not just kids, but I know kids are impacted more severely most cases in terms of lead and other other toxic substances just because they're young and their you know immune systems are still developing and then also how, what's the plan for you know actually taking care of getting this cleaned up and i'm not sure if you're going to have all of answers for you know all, each of these things as well but um just want to give you an opportunity to share with me and with listeners whatever you do know on all of those points right so what we've done is we formed a group uh, called Calumet Lives Matter to try to help and address some of these issues. Uh, one of the things that happened, because we've, we've allowed capital to escape and their escape responsibility, you know, as these industries moved overseas, they just left their contaminants in the ground. We've, people kind of laugh and chuckle about how Northwest Indiana is just a toxic dump uh, and stuff. But what really has occurred is, it has been allowed, it's an allow, allowable program. It's a permitted program allowing industries to leave their contaminants here and walk away from it in terms of liability. Uh, what's happening right now is the cascading effects. You know, issues of housing that was built on a known lead refinery, issues of health of 40 years of populations, maybe 10,000 or, or tens of thousands of people that lived there and trying to... Uh, you know, try to make those people whole. Um, so right now, uh, the East Chicago Housing Authority is in the process of uh, relocating people. Uh, it hasn't been, unfortunately, a smooth process. Um, it's meant that we have had to step in with some attorneys to demand the rights of the residents uh, that, that the East Chicago Housing provide uh, uh, options for them and that there are safe options and that they provide for um, moving expenses and that they provide for deposits uh, as well. One of the hard things is that the East Chicago Housing Authority has required them to continue paying their rent even though they'll be moved out and so that residents don't have monies uh, for putting down deposits elsewhere. So we're trying to provide for the residents in this transition uh, and also tr one of the main and we're also trying to provide for the health of them going forward. We're, we're, at, we're seeking uh, testing 
uh, one of the things that's happened in the last couple of weeks is the testing location and authorities who are doing the testings have shifted and changed to dip five different places, and it's really confused the residents. Um, we're also asking for a comprehensive testing, not just a prick, uh, but drawing some blood, but we're all, and, then, and then moving uh, into a treatment program. Uh, we're also looking, uh, you know, even though a, a child or a, a young adult may today not test high, it doesn't mean they didn't test high previously. So we're also asking for them to be assessed uh, in terms of their uh, development level and stuff like that. So in case, let's say, a five-year-old who is very vulnerable to lead doesn't test high today, but maybe when they're one, when they're super vulnerable, had tested very high. Uh, and so today they won't, they won't uh, you know, be registered as somebody that's high in, in a dangerous situation, uh, but okay. will be carrying forward a lot of learning issues. So if we get them assessed going forward, they were able, they'll be able to draw on some resources. Uh, and then we're also asking for, uh, like they did in Flint, uh, expanded health care uh, to, to, to be able to help them in the future going forward. So those are some of the initiatives that are going, that are happening today. Well, thank you for sharing that with me. Is there a website where people listening can plug in and, and learn more about whatever might be the most up-to-date or current information on this? Right. So right now we have uh, Calumet Lives Matter on Facebook, and that's what we're utilizing uh, more okay. than anything else. There's another, there okay. are multiple groups, groups that have uh, formed. There's another group that uh, calls uh, Environmental Justice Northwest Indiana, which is forming a nonprofit uh, in this area. And there are other groups that have been uh, helping as well. We have the Nurses United uh, that have been helping. Uh, we have um, uh, Black Lives Matter Gary, which has been helpful as well, and many other groups uh, that have been kind of coming in and helping us canvas and and uh, uh, do surveys and, and reach out to the community. Okay. And I know you've been using a hashtag pretty successfully, Calumet Lives Matter, so probably people could plug that into their Facebook search and maybe find various threads from different groups, I would imagine. Right, that right. Hashtag, would, that, would that be a recommended strategy? Definitely, definitely. Okay, okay, good. And you know, obviously, people, people first. You know, that's that's the thing that really makes your heart go pitter patter. The land, you know, is important as well. But you know, want to make sure that those people and their health are taken care of. And then, you know, then my attention turns to the land. We would hate to just have it evacuated and it just sits there, still contaminated. And nothing's, you know, nothing's happening toward remediation, uh, do you know if, if there are any plans for that yet, or is it just too soon? No, um, this, is, this is what's been a part of the controversy, is that this has been known to be a contaminated site for nearly 44 years since they built uh, the housing project, but also throughout the Calumet neighborhood. There are three zones, three areas. There's West Calumet, there's the Old Calumet, and there's what's called Hunky Town, uh, which is the most probably middle-class neighborhood. Um, and so they've known for quite a while that lead levels, they've been testing since 1985 in different areas. I, I think in 1990, um, there were concerns great enough to lead test all this, the young children under six and found that 40% of them tested high, above 10 
milligrams per deciliter uh, back then. Um, unfortunately, things had not picked up. Nothing had triggered actions uh, previously. It's been a long, hard process to get to this point where we're actually getting some action. So in 19, what, what really has triggered this in the long term was that 19, or I'm sorry, in 2009, the US EPA finally declared this a super fund or put it on the national priority list. It had been a candidate since the early 1990s um, when, they were, when they built what's called a Camus over one of the sites, the US-led site. They built what's called a, uh, a confined disposal facility. They put you know, 40 feet of clay on a 21-acre site and put a liner around it because they knew that that site you know, of a lead refinery was very dangerous. But also at that time, they should have been thinking, you know, looking forward and saying, uh-oh, at least, at what was going on in West Calumet where they built a housing project on top of a land refinery. And so right. that has triggered – Very you know, likely kind of a, suffer the same issues, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so over the years, they've, they've kind of nibbled at trying – you know, what I would say, it's been a very professional process of not finding what you don't want to find – but nibbling at it a little bit because of certain concerns, like in 1990 when they tested the kids with lead, uh, but didn't do anything about it, didn't, didn't trigger an action. Uh, but finally in 2009, it was placed on the national priority list. Uh, but unfortunately, most of that time has been devoted to finding and securing uh, responsible parties uh, and also maybe doing a remediation plan, designing a remediation plan. Uh, but what they didn't do in the last seven years is they didn't prioritize the population, the people that live there. And that's been the most unfortunate thing is even up until a week after the mayor had had declared that they wanted to demolish the site, they were still taking in residents. And even today they are still taking in, you know, the redevelopment authority is still – taking in residents in the, in the other uh, zones of the Superfund site. So this is, these are the kind of mixed messaging that we, we find, and they're placing more people in harm's way um, before they address the issue. So there's, there's a, it's an it's a era of lots of – what I would say is there are two major trends. You can look at the data, and you can see that it was revealing where the hot spots were and where you can go to. The reason why we didn't go to those is, is really something that has to be questioned. Um, clearly, we're not data-driven in this process. I think it's a lot to do with racism, a lot to do with limiting the liabilities of those who are in power. Uh, and I think that's what we've seen in the last 40 years in Northwest Indiana. And I think the other trend that represents that is uh, regulatory capture. I think these industries run most of these these uh, regulatory agencies uh, determine much of their methodology. They hold most of the professional uh, expertise uh, on these issues. They have most of the attorneys. Um, it's a very asymmetrical uh, uh, battle uh, for health for low-income communities of color. And I think that's what we see here, uh, two examples of. Well, it's it's just it's overwhelming to hear so many things all at once. It's just kind of hard to know how to you know dig into the middle of it and untie this knot. <laughs> but you well, know, it's, I, it's I don't want everybody been... to just yeah go ahead. 
I was just going to say it's something that we have not – we've been very much aware of. These are very toxic secrets that are very open in northwest Indiana. Since the 80s and 90s, since we had the Calumet Task Force and various other organizations, they had pointed out a lot of these hot spots. We just have not addressed them, or we've allowed industry to continue to address them and, and paper over the problem. Uh, we have – we expanded an airport. Airports are notoriously – uh, damaging to communities of color, low-income communities of color, placing a lot of the burden on them. And that's what we did here to put, you know, to drive economic development. And in so doing, we, we broke open a couple of pipelines uh, that have been allowed to spill and are continuing to spill three or four or five years later. Uh, we have lots of, this is what I call business as usual in Northwest Indiana. This is, this is normal practice. Um, and it's a, it's a, I think a really, I think it's a, you know, it demonstrates uh, some of the worst in this country. Well, and I, you know, you and I have spoken before. I think you've been a guest on the show before, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, or at least I know we've talked oh, about yeah. your art in the past. Uh, maybe it could have been through somebody else, but you were definitely in the conversation. And I, I kind of want to go back to just your title, the way that you refer to yourself as an artist activist, because you're obviously passionate, you obviously want to do something yourself, and I'm just curious, like, how do you use your role as artist <laughs> to creatively approach something, you know, that, that feels so big of an issue? Right. Um, and I'm just, you know, not trying to put it all on you, but I just want to try no. to activate within listeners kind of like, hey, what special gift do I have, or what, what ideas okay. do I have to, to kind of move forward on some kind of partial solution or something that we can do while we wait for the powers that be to kind of get their collective acts together. Well, the reason I identify myself as an artist activist is uh, from early on, I, I trained and, and uh, uh, received lots of uh, success in the arts, uh, went to graduate school on scholarship and stuff in the arts and fine arts and painting. But I also studied languages, philosophy, and urban planning. And that's really what brought me into Northwest Indiana and in dealing with this is I was in the process of a, a master's degree in urban planning when I was uh, tapped to be the director of the Inner Harbor Shipping Canal, which at the time was considered the most polluted body of water in America, and which incidentally goes right next to this neighborhood. Um, and that's what taught me a lot of the issues about the environment. Uh, in that to try to, I was in the process of chairing a committee to do a comprehensive plan for East Chicago. And in so doing, you kept hitting the environmental issues, the impediments, the impediments. And there was always a, a, a corporate interest or industrial interest that was trying to limit their liabilities on that land. And while I was looking to bring it into higher and better uses for the community, there were other interests that were really scared by what those interests might be because that meant they were carrying the, you know, they would have to pay. And they were doing everything they can to limit that. Part of the way of limiting is running out the time clock of 30 years. If they can hold off uh, action for 30 years, they can walk away. And so uh, I, I ended up hurting, I wouldn't say hurting, <laughs> I ended up not benefiting the community enough, as much as I could in that professional capacity. Uh, and I also saw the whole region was aiming in a direction that was not benefiting the community. We weren't community focused uh, in any of our development. We're industrially focused. We have an industrial economy. 
And with BP coming here, uh, we, we doubled down on the industrial in his, you know, economy of the 20th century instead of moving forward. Um, but what I ended up finding myself doing is identifying more in the arts again, um, just to maintain my balance and to operate in, in, in a way that talks to the narrative uh, of our region. Um, I saw our political economy, our attorneys, uh, our public officials failing us miserably with one decision after another after another, especially our regional uh, leadership. And it really wasn't something I saw as a viable future, uh, forward, uh, you know, future forward for the region. Um, so I ended up organizing with activists and artists uh, and then organizing more broadly within the Great Lakes region and identifying with uh, environmental justice or another way of referring to it, environmental racism and also climate justice uh, movements and organizing with those and trying to marry those two movements. And I think we see an example of that with uh, Marktown. I mean, this is West, West Calumet didn't just happen in a vacuum. It's not just one accident. This is actually the third neighborhood in two decades in East Chicago that's been cannibalized by industry. First, it was the Brickyard in the mid-1990s. Two years ago, it's Marktown, which is the National Historic District, because BP moved directly across the street from it. And now it's West Calumet. Now, this is also not the last neighborhood that's going to be cannibalized. We, we know that there are a great number of um, very you know, neighborhoods in very dangerous uh, situations with industry adjacent to them or having been there previously. Uh, and I really have found it more, I've been more effective in operating in the artist activist space than in the public space. Uh, the public space has been, is a dangerous space <laughs> for people that ha- are looking to help the community. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand what you said, that you, in your role, you even found with the best of intentions, you felt like you're, you know, you were tied a little bit. So I, I get it, and I just really, you know, appreciate <laughs> you bringing this message today, and even the frustration part, because it's honest, and, you know, I think you can probably empathize to some extent, the people on both sides, you know, because you've kind of been there. So... You know, I, I love that you're using your art to kind of educate and change things. And I'd just like to throw out a few other ideas that I'm aware of that might somehow play a part in this. And that might give you a little time to think of additional comments you'd like to say to wrap up to. <laughs> but um, I will actually be interviewing another guest here soon on the podcast that I think might be talking about something that could fit into this fairly well. Uh, her name is Linda Rosenthal and she is a facilitator for the Pachamama Alliance. She's going to be uh, hosting a symposium called Awakening the Dreamer in Hammond on uh, September the 25th. I don't know that I've got exact times for that yet. I think it's going to be um, like 1230 to 5, I want to say, and that will be held at Unity in Hammond. So it's a Unity Church, Unity Spiritual Center in Hammond. And if, if you don't know about the Pachamama Alliance, basically... It's a nonprofit organization that's basically trying to urge people all over the world, but especially in the U.S., where we, you know, do have quite a bit of industry to to look at the earth as a whole and the whole human family to cr- kind of create a new future together. So I just actually completed the um, 
another online program that they do called the Game Changer Intensive. It's a seven-week program where you meet with people all over the world. We had people from Australia, and it, you know, it was really kind of an interesting group. And we all just focused on what part can we play. So if, if you're hearing this and whether you want to plug into this particular issue, which you know I suspect is going to take a lot of you know, hands and hearts and wallets to, to help, you know, from a grassroots perspective as well as from the powers that be, that might be a good framework for you to just kind of get in and talk to, you know, some like-minded others as an additional way, additional resource uh, that you can get through the organization Thomas has already named. Maybe coming about it just from a slightly, you know, different different angle as well. So um, I believe that's completely free to attend, and I, I'm going to be there. I think it's going to be a really good program. Um, just another couple of things that I'm thinking of. I have no idea if this is way, way out there, <laughs> but I had really wanted to go into Chicago last week to hear um, an author that I'm interested in, Peter McCoy. He wrote a book called Radical Mycology, and I know part of what he was talking about was using – mushrooms or, you know, mycorrhizal fungi, fungi, whatever you say, to kind of draw out heavy metals from the soil, including lead, you know, and arsenic. So I know that would be, you know, possibly a little crazy, but I follow a lot of crazy threads. So I just want to throw it out there in hopes that maybe somebody smarter than me can put it together. Maybe I could even get Peter McCoy on this, uh, you know, podcast, which would be pretty cool. But, you know, how do we go to the root of it? That's, that's one thing I really valued about going through the Pachamama Alliance's online program with the Game Changer Intensive. As they said, you know, if you're going to go after solutions, make sure you're going after the root of the problem versus just a symptom because, you know, that can get frustrating. So if you really want to change the game, you know, go to the source. And I, I don't doubt that you're doing that, Thomas, because <laughs> I think you go in pretty deep and, and really educate yourself. So I, I really appreciate that about you. And then just one last uh, possible resource I'd like to throw out there is, you know, I, I launched a community-wide time bank, or I should say region-wide time bank. It's called CoThrive Time Bank. And it acknowledges that, yes, we have this economy that's mostly, you know, run by industry and big business, but we, the people, can have our own economy that's not really based on money. It's based on time and performing services for one another. And, um, you know, I'm thinking these people have just been evacuated. They're not going to be great candidates probably. You know, they're, they're in a transition mode. They just need help. But what I found is we've attracted a lot of people to the time bank that may not really need any help and are, are willing to kind of put their hours forth toward a big project. So I'm just going to kind of put that out there as an intention that I'd love to attract people, you know, willing to kind of gather around helping whatever that's going to look like in the future. But we'd certainly be happy to to look at that um, in the coming weeks and months. So anyway, that's that's right. what I've got. If people want more more about CoThrive, they can go to cothrive.org forward slash time bank. And if you want more about, um, I don't know if we've got it out on a website yet for that uh, Awakening the Dreamer symposium, but you can probably go to pachamama.org, that's P-A-C-H, amama.org, and I bet that they're going to have it listed on their calendar. So anyway, we've just got a few minutes left. Is there anything that you would like to say in conclusion, Thomas? Well, I would agree with you. I think uh, for everybody to um, start from where they are and uh, see how they can uh, get involved from their own perspective, their own 
way of understanding their own set of skills, and and then build out connections. Uh, get involved, build out connections. Um, one of the things about Northwest Indiana is we have a rich history. Uh, Renee Hatcher has been really good about uh, bringing out a uh, long history of what we call a solidarity economy, um, coming, you know, starting way back in the 30s when African Americans in the region had to build out their own resources and their own kind of local economy. And we can see uh, opportunities there and also building out forward to a green industrial economy. We've, we're a working class community. There's no reason why we have to be uh, accepting uh, industries here that externalize their costs into the air, water and land, poisons, toxins, that, you know, communities of color uh, receive seven times more toxins in their air, breathe seven times more toxins there than, than other than white communities. And we shouldn't have to accept that. Um, we should be able to say zero emissions. And every time we say zero emissions, that means more jobs for pollution controls. Um, so there isn't a, a battle between the union and the, and the worker uh, and the environmentalist. Uh, so I think uh, starting where you can, I think we can make connections uh, and building out those connections, building out solidarity uh, movements between us with Black Lives Matter, with nurses unions, with the teachers. Uh, there's a lot of ways in which we can move forward. Well, well said. And I have a feeling that this is going to be an issue that we're going to be talking about or wanted to talk about for a while. So I'd love just to invite you in advance to come back when we know a bit more and we've, when we've got you know the next chapter of how this all unfolds. So I really appreciate you being with me here today, and we are out of time for this episode. But uh, thank you once again for joining me. I'm Kathy Sipple, your host, and this has been another episode of 219 Green Connect. And thank you. Thank you.